Welcome to This Is Your Journey with Sam Edmund. For Tobin Brothers Funerals, visit tobinbrothers.com.au. Tobin Brothers Funerals, celebrating lives. A big hello, everybody, and welcome once again to the show, brought to you, as always, by the great crew at Tobin Brothers Funerals Celebrating Lives. Today, we are joined by one of the AFL's most decorated players and a man who sits among its most revered leaders. Luke Hodge is a four-time premiership player, three of them won as a captain, a dual Norm Smith medalist, a triple All-Australian, and a two-time best and fairest. A strong-minded kid from Colac, Luke grew into a formidable competitor with an ability to impose himself on the biggest games of his life. Luke Hodge, welcome, and thanks a lot for your time. Good morning, Sammy. Thanks for having me. I don't want to get too deep right off the top, but I've got to (laughs) say, for a man who has a resume like yours, I have to say, I found you incredibly modest and self-deprecating in the years since you, you hung up the boot. Some, I guess became more well known to us on the outside via, you know, via your various media roles. Have you always been like that? Because to do what you did, you do need a sense of arrogance, don't you, to get that far? Oh, I think uh, I grew up in a, in a small country town of, of Colac, and I think if you stepped out of line at all, uh, you got a clip, clip over the back of the ears. So um, I look, <laughs> any time where, and I, I think we we're very fortunate enough at Hawthorne that if anyone they, they liked to, they liked everyone staying at a balance. So if you were playing poor football, they'll they'll try and do many things to bump you up. If you're playing really good football, they'll show a few edits of you not playing the team role or doing some things that weren't to standard. So there was a they wanted to try and keep everyone consistent. Yeah. So I think, uh, especially with the leaders that we had around the time, we had a very uh, we had a few very strong characters around our football club, both coaches and players. But yeah, we made sure that everyone was, was doing the team things and couldn't get too far ahead of himself. But that extends into retirement. So for example, you are, as we'll flesh out later, you were at the pointy end of the famous 2001 Super Draft. Obviously, uh, Luke Ball at two, Chris Judd at three, and you had a career uh, more than befitting of that honour, yet I've seen you reflect on yourself as the fat kid from Colac. <laughs> well, p- probably lucky back in 2001 they didn't do a lot of the testing that they do uh, in today, and they're not probably, they realised that we were kids and kids do take a little bit of time to, to learn and mature, and I guess I took a little bit longer than, than Bully and, and Juddy, but uh, I was, I think we went back in my, my draft camp skin folds, I think my whole body, no sorry, Luke Ball's whole body was smaller than my stomach uh, and it comes when it comes to fat content so I oh, look there was, there was no doubt that that I'd, I had a lot that I had to learn to be a professional AFL footballer and uh, you look how Juddy and, and Bawley sort of especially Juddy how he started off yep. yeah there was a few probably questions of whether the decision was the right one or wrong one at, at the time and we'll come back to that. it's hard to believe that was 22 years ago already and we are speaking now in the weeks before the 2023 draft are, are the memories vivid still for you does it does it feel like yesterday or does the body have too many miles on the clock for that to be possible? Uh, the body does have a few miles on it, but you still remember certain parts. I'm not one of those blokes who remember everything like a, a Jared Ruffett or a Campbell Brown who seem to remember uh, on a day process from their first day onwards. But look, there's, there's certain parts of the draft, the nervousness of the draft. Uh, going back to Colac afterwards, uh, my football club, uh, Colac Imperials, put on a bit of a shindig back there and it, was a, it turned out to be a pretty late night. So, yeah, so certain parts of it you, you do you do remember and, and they probably make you grateful. I didn't have to rock up to Hawthorne. 
on, on day one. I, they gave me two or three days because they realised I was going back to the country and rocking up on a Monday probably wouldn't have been the, the best. Uh, I wouldn't have been in the best state, I guess. So, look, there's certain things that you look back on and, and still stories that we talk about with our, with our schoolmates today from, from back then. We're chatting over Zoom. I've got about eight layers on down here in Melbourne. You're <laughs> kicking back with a, a singlet on. Um, where do we find you? Uh, I'm in the office at home. And you're right, I've got the air con, I've got the fan pumping. It is another warm day. And that's one thing is Queensland, since we moved up here six years ago, I think we were here for six months and I was on the golf course in shorts and a, and a t-shirt and we went to what we were watching our kids play football in, in similar attire where I remember back in the days in Victoria where you used to go and uh, watch Coop play juniors and you'd have eight layers of clothing on, you'd have a beanie, you'd have a jacket, yep. you'd have a coffee just to keep the hands warm. Um, so it's, it is a very nice lifestyle up here. You don't even own a pair of pants anymore, do you? I, I do have a pair that's One. left in Melbourne for when, right. I, for when I travel down. <laughs> so I, it's got to be a very serious event up here for us to, to chuck on some, some jeans or some slacks. But it's it's normally shorts with a button-up if we're really getting dressed up. That's probably takes me, takes me back to the uh, the Colac yeah. days of, of dressing up. So those leadership qualities you had as a captain of an AFL club have to serve you well now because you and your wife, Lauren, are parents of four boys, Cooper, Chase, Leo and Tanner. Now, what does the Hodge family planner or calendar look like? Getting through a weekend, honestly, must be like solving a Rubik's Cube. It is, and I'll probably have to thank Lauren. From, she handles most of it because my, my role with Channel 7 is, is Friday night commentary. So I travel uh, every weekend unless Brisbane Lions play a home game uh, on the Friday night up here. So, look, I think all the... The masterminding goes down to Lauren. My old man moved up 18 months ago. He came up for for a week uh, at the start of the season and took the kids to about five games of sport between football and basketball. And then within a month, he'd moved up because he realised he was going to be very handy for us and he and he liked the liked the weather up here. So I guess where we live, it is a, a bit of a, a country feel. Is there's six or seven school friends that the kids in each year that the kids sort of bond with and and we help out where we can and, and they mm. help us out where where they can. So I know a lot of a lot of my time now in the off season is doing a lot of car rides and I'm, I'm coach of Chasey's touch football, which the uh, the 11-year-olds had to tell me the rules of touch football. Uh, I was telling them to go and tackle and, and be aggressive, and they had to inform me that's not what the game's about, and, and doing a little bit of stuff with, with Coop's football as well. So in the off-season, you sort of juggle around to try and help out uh, and help the other parents where they, they definitely give you a, a, a hand or give Lauren a hand in, in the football season. Geez, you're a long way from Colac, where, as we said, you were first raised. And your first AFL coach, Peter Schwab, once described you as, quote-unquote, strongly bonded with the place he's from. So but Brisbane's now home, isn't it? Brisbane is home for you guys, and, and that's where you're at. Yes, well, I guess, like every married person, as you do what your wife tells you. <laughs> and we, I think Lauren Lauren made that, that call about six months into us moving here. And as I said, the, the place to bring up four kids, four boys, is, is amazing up here. They're always outside. As I said, we spoke about how, how good the, the winters are up here, but we felt comfortable straight away. We moved very quickly to, to call it home. And look, I still love Melbourne. I still love going back to the country to see family and friends. Uh, I love the fact that my job brings me back to Melbourne because I, I love the place and I love commentating football. But yeah, as far as where we'll probably base ourselves for, for a long time, it's definitely up here. You didn't get contacted uh, in the last couple of days by the Colac Herald, did you, for comment on the big earthquake in, in your old town? <laughs> no, I, uh, we, we did get a, uh, in the family group chat, my sister put in that at two o'clock that Colac had an earthquake. I thought that's going to give them a bit of, a bit of, a bit of news-worthy stuff <laughs> for, for a few years. But yeah, I think there was something to talk around the town anyway. So your father, Bryson, your mum, Leanne, um, your siblings, Dylan, Bianca, what? What did mum and dad do for a living when you were growing up down there, Hodgie? Dad was heavily, uh, he was a truck driver down in Colac, but heavily in the SES. So he was, he was get called out to any emergency from, and I mean, remember him doing that from, from a young age. Uh, and mum worked up at Calanda, yeah, so with, with the disabled up there. So she pretty much did that from 
when I was a kid uh, until they closed, and, and now she's moved on to up in Geelong. So as a boy, what did a little Luke Hodge want to be when he grew up? Like, was it always footy? Did you want to be a fiery? Did you want to be a cop? Did you want to be a pilot? What did? It, what was your earliest memory of what you want to be when you grow up? All my childhood was around sport. I grew up with either a basketball, a cricket bat, or a, or a football in hand. Work-wise, uh, Jordan Lewis and myself, when we first got to Hawthorne, did some stuff with the police force. I always wanted to be a cop uh, as a kid growing up and realised that I might have a target on my back if I was a copper while playing AFL football. So, <laughs> um, But yeah, it, it was always down the sport side of things. I, I, I try and say to the kids now that you got, I wish I had a focus more on, on school back then because if football didn't work out it would have been in all sorts so uh, that's sort of something we push with our kids now Great pleasure to have a company on This Is Your Journey it's thanks to Tobin Brothers, a family owned business since 1934 Right, we're going to retrace Luke Hodges' path to the AFL big time right after this You're listening to This Is Your Journey with Sam Edmund for Tobin Brothers Funerals visit tobinbrothers.com.au Tobin Brothers Funerals, celebrating lives You're listening to This Is Your Journey with Sam Edmund. For Tobin Brothers Funerals, visit tobinbrothers.com.au. Tobin Brothers Funerals, celebrating lives. Hello, it's great to have your company on This Is Your Journey. It's made possible by Tobin Brothers Funerals at Celebrating Lies. And Hawthorne legend Luke Hodge is our guest today. All right, Hodgie, AFL Under-16's National Carnival. Around that time, I think you're playing seniors footy for Colac. Now, I'm not sure if mum thought that was a good idea, but I read in your second game you kick half a dozen playing at Sanar Forward? Uh, yeah, I think Dad had to convince Mum, I think, to let me play seniors. We got we got a call from Colac. I played a couple of under-18 games, and then they said, oh, you're 15. And back then, that's what you aim to do. When you're when you're a kid at 15, you, you wanted to play senior football because I, I grew up at the at the Colac Imperials. We just moved across to Colac Tigers, and I think it was about round five, four or five, uh, I got the opportunity to, to play seniors. But then I went back and played my first senior game with Colac Imperials because I think if you got drafted back then, you um team where you play your first senior game for got footballs or got some money from, from the AFL. So I went back to my, my junior club and played a senior game there and then went across to Colac Tigers and, and played uh, three games there before joining the Falcons. And the same year that Hawthorne ended up taking with pick one, obviously 2001, as we said, we have I, am I right in saying you were selected in the Victorian under-17 cricket squad that year? Yes, Jimmy Bartel, Luke Ball and myself were in the under-17 squad, but then it got to the stage where, because Jimmy was a year older and Ball and myself, uh, we, we had the under-16s um, state carnival that yeah we had to make a call and obviously balling myself opted to pull out of the cricket and, and go to the football where Jimmy ended up going on to play because he was a year older and the under 18 carnival was, was a little bit later on so would I describe you as what like a tearaway quick I would say an erratic an erratic fast bowler if I I had no idea where the ball was going if, if I hit the if I hit the stumps or the or the batter it seemed to be a win I, I heard um, you, you yeah, like to intimidate with the ball didn't you I'd say it would have been that young fast bowler's mentality I, I actually had a <laughs> mate when we were playing in Colac he was batting he was an opening batter he was a handy batter bat Paul Langdon and I had come out and it was a full toss and it he was probably going about chest height at him uh, and he's put his arms up hit him in the arm broke his arm <laughs> so it's, as I said it was there was no intent to hurt him uh, I was trying to bowl a Yorker and I just had no idea where the ball was going so uh, every time I go back to Colac and see him he does remind me of, of the beamer that I bowled at him which broke his arm but my defense was you got a bat mate you should have hit it so yeah it was it was a clear decision that cricket as much as I love cricket as a kid there was no there was no pathway for me to, to go there with a, a slogger down at six or seven and and someone who couldn't put the ball where he wanted it on the pitch <laughs> so Fremantle had pick one but they tried 
traded it, didn't they, for McFarlane and Crowe. So you grew up a Richmond supporter, I think. Did you know Hawthorne were going to take you at one from a fair way out? John Turnbull, I think, was a recruiter at the time. We got to the draft camp, and Richmond, they knew that I was a massive Richmond supporter. My whole family of Richmond, I remember, um, went down to... My first game was about 95, I think. Uh, 95 when I think North Melbourne had that strong. I think Richmond, Richmond beat them round three or four, and no one expected it. I remember sitting in the, in the stand, and there was about 70,000 Richmond supporters singing their theme song, and I remember getting chills thinking, this is what I want to do. Uh, but then fast forward to the draft camp, and Danny Frawley called me in. He goes, they finished, I think they finished third. They, they lost the prelim. He goes, look, mate, you're probably not going to be there when um, when we're here, but we just want to say we know you're a Richmond supporter and just want to have a meeting saying good luck in, in your career. And if you ever want to come back to Richmond in time, then then so be it. But that never eventuated. But well, I was just wrapped at Danny Frawley, pulled me in and just sort of had the, uh, it was nice enough just to have a meeting, just to say g'day and, and thanks for the support over the years. But yeah, it, it got to the stage where it was, it was down to Fremantle, West Coast and Hawthorne and Hawthorne did the did the chain uh, did the swap with Fremantle and we knew from that I think that then the pick was Hawthorne St Kilda West Coast yep. after they did the trade of, of Trent Crowe and all I remember was the uh, there was a lot of Hawthorne supporters that uh, that met down at Glenferry Road and there was a big protest on they didn't want to trade Trent Crowe for an untried 18 year old or 17 year old kid so I knew, knew walking into the draft that there was a lot of people that if uh, if this didn't go the right way they would have been uh, quite filthy at me in the club so you get taken and it was said at that age that regardless of what sport it was, whether it be footy, cricket, basketball, you had an uncanny knack to read where the ball was going next and to plan accordingly. But as we've already touched on, when it came to professional football that you're about to walk into, did you have a grasp of what was required those early days at the top level? No, no. I, as I said, I was a 17-year-old kid who just finished year 11 in Colac at 10, 11,000 people. When you talk about dietitian, I don't think I'd ever heard of a dietitian when I got drafted to, to Hawthorne. It was it was an eye-opener. So what were you eating after a game? Like, let's be honest. So let's say you play a Friday night game, you're going into Saturday, what, cheeseburger on the way home or a couple of couple of well, quiet ones? Or That was the thing is you, you'd meet, to go down to Falcons training, you'd meet, the, the, the pick-up point was Maccas. Yeah. So you, <laughs> and as I said, it's, it was just a, it was a, like the middle, middle of Colac, that's where you met and that's where the pick-up and drop-off was. You'd meet there from school, you'd be hungry, you'd grab some Maccas on the way down and, and as I said, as a kid, you, you didn't think anything of it. Like It was just a, a part of what everyone, every, everyone yeah. else was doing. Exactly right, you were young enough, you could burn it off. So weight and body shape-wise, I was actually okay. So it didn't look like I was eating. It wasn't until I probably got to 16, 17, had osteopubis and wasn't able to run and probably kept the, didn't understand that that's when diet takes takes over. When you can't run and exercise, you need to watch what you eat. And I probably didn't in my last year of under 18s because I wasn't playing any football. And then getting drafted, moving to the AFL, you could really see, it's so much better now, but you could really see back then of kids that grew up in Melbourne, private schools who had an education and had people that taught them this. Like they would have players who would come back to their school that were drafted in previous years and educate them and tell them what the rights and wrongs. From like I'd, I'd do what the senior guys were doing. You'd, you'd finish a game of football at 15, 16, and there'd be a pizza and, and a slab in the middle. So you'd have you'd have a piece of pizza, you'd have yeah. a beer, and, and that that was football. And that's that's how I grew up understanding football. So yeah, it did take me a long time to, to understand what you needed to do to play consistent football. I, in my first few years, I'd, I'd have a good game, but then I'd be missing because I was unfit and couldn't train and, and that kind of stuff. And I, I guess it, it weighed heavily because three years into into my career, after they made the call of picking myself over over Juddy, John Turnbull got fired, Peter Swab got fired because we hadn't played finals for three years and I think Juddie had won a best and fairest and was on the way to winning a Brownlow the next year and, and I'd played 45 games and had stress fractures, had groin issues. Yeah, so it wasn't an ideal start. How did Hawthorne react when they found out, you know, a certain Al Hodge was taking wickets for Lawn Cricket Club on weekends? <laughs> uh, that was uh, that was the first year that Clarko and Andrew Russell were appointed, 2005. And I, I think the rule was that if you're doing your pre-season, you can have a bit of fun. But I, I, didn't, miss, I didn't miss a beat in that 
that pre-season. Uh, so it was probably the first year that I was actually fit. I was doing stuff. So I went down there and just started with the odd game of cricket. And then uh, a few more mates started playing and ended up playing the whole season. And yeah, <laughs> I, I made some runs in the grand final. And, and uh, there was a little article in the paper, which I may have got mentioned to me. Oh, no. um, that Have you been doing this all year? So it was, it was in the lead up to some pre-season games. That's how far into the season we were playing. I think it was March when the finals were. And I got reminded that maybe the odd hit is okay, but not don't play full season. If you do, just let the, the fitness guys know. We do laugh about it now, and you do as well. So John Turnbull, as we said, so he's let go three years later, which I think the same year Chris Judd wins the Brownlow. You hadn't done a pre-season in your first year. The stress fractures you mentioned in your left foot in your third year. So were you competitive to the point where you measured yourself against Juddy and Borley as the years went on? I mean, it would have been almost impossible not to be aware of what they were doing because the press around the three of you was relentless. And from a mental point of view, you must have had your challenging moments with that. Uh, yeah, it was. And, and that's the thing is it's it's good and bad being around a football club because Peter Swab was really good. He would meet with me on a Monday, just talk about trying. He was trying to fast track that development. So he would meet with me and talk about diet, what you do on the weekend. And, and I'd, I went back to Colac and he would go through, what did you eat? And he's like, you have to start to limit doing that. You've got to spend more time in Melbourne around, around your teammates because you go back home and you live like your mates do. Where in Melbourne, if you hang around the, your teammates that are professional, you'll start to live like them. So he, he was trying to coach me through that professionalism side of things in, in years two and three. It was it was tough, the fact that players, even teammates were joking around saying, oh, we, we grabbed you and Juddy's winning a brown light. That's football. And this is why I'm a, I'm a big one for, for young kids that come in. People mature at different times. Juddy was an ultimate professional from, from day dot. Uh, he knew what he had to do and he started his career exactly like that. And as I said, it's taken, it took me a little bit to understand it. And uh, I, I wouldn't change anything because I had a lot of good times with, with friends and families uh, early on. I missed a lot of 18th and 21st, but that's a learning curve. And I, I think when I talk to younger guys that have come from the country today, I, I can when, when I sort of say that I, I came through the same similar journey from them, it's a bit of a connection piece for them. So mm. I, I can understand where those blokes that have had a, a slow start to their career, why that's the case. And, and I've got a little bit of a little bit of leeway for them early on in their careers for sure. Yeah, and I'm sure knowing how you turned out, obviously, if it did cut you a bit at the time, it certainly motivated you as well. So we're going to get into the premierships and the glory after a break in a moment. But I, I just wanted to drill into your psyche for a moment and what set you up for that success. So that competitiveness, that want, that the ability to give it, but also wear it and shake hands with your opponent at the end. Was that the country upbringing, how you were raised, or was it just innate in you, do you think? I was definitely competitive side of things. I grew up with, I spent a lot of time with my cousins and, and uncles. I've got uncles that are seven and ten years older than me. got cousins that are four or five years older, so from... Uh, when I remember I was playing basketball at their house, playing backyard cricket, playing football, go down to the park with them. And I was always a young kid trying to prove that I can play with them. Uh, you'd lose most of the time and you'd get bullied. You'd probably go home crying. But also we lived around the corner from, from a football oval and Dad, whenever you get home from work, you'd be sitting down there and you'd be 20 kicks on your left, 20 kicks on your right. We're not going home until you, you hit your 20 on your right. And more often than not, I'd, I'd go home crying because I couldn't get to 10, let alone 20. So it was always the comp- competitive juices were always there. But I think it helped when you, you battled against family members who didn't take it easy on you and I'm, I'm thankful for that because I guess that's where the competitive streak come from. Love it. We're with Hawthorne icon Luke Hodge on This Is Your Journey. It's thanks to Tobin Brothers Funerals celebrating lives. So the grand finals, the premierships, that Hawthorne golden era under Alistair Clarkson is after this. You're listening to This Is Your Journey with Sam Edmund for Tobin Brothers Funerals. Visit tobinbrothers.com.au Tobin Brothers Funerals celebrating lives. You're listening to This Is Your Journey with Sam Edmund. For Tobin Brothers Funerals, visit tobinbrothers.com.au. Tobin Brothers Funerals, celebrating lives.
Hello, we hope you're enjoying this week's edition of This Is Your Journey. Today's guest is none other than the four-time Premiership Hawk and dual Norm Smith medalist Luke Hodge. So, Hodgie, the 08 Grand Final. How many ribs were broken coming in? <laughs> I, look, I, I don't know. I don't know if they were if they were broken. We we made a call from the prelim. I think it was the Friday night game against St Kilda where Kazitsky. I've gone back with a flight. Kazitsky on the boundary line put his knee up and it was right on right on quarter time. And I remember the doc came over and there's a photo of me spitting up blood. I think that was where the concern. The ribs were sore, but we went in on the Monday and I think it was Andrew Russell. Uh, one of them sort of said, "Well, what's the point of scanning? It's either we do a fitness test, and if you get through the fitness test, you'll play. Uh, a scan's not going to determine that." So if you couldn't get through the fitness test, then you won't play. So mm. we didn't bother scanning it. We just trained as normal. They put on a bit of a they put on a guard around the ribs, and yeah, it, it seemed to work. The the first thirty seconds when Stokesy came up there, I thought it's going to go two ways. I'm either going to try and fight him and stop him from hitting me, and this is going to happen all game, or I'll put my arms up and let him try and hit it, and hopefully he doesn't hit the right spot. Oh, oh, here we go. He's frisking him. Hodges the target. They've come for him already. Um, the guard that uh, the, the, the physio made, Andrew Lambert, worked a treat. Uh, Stokes hit me in the ribs a couple of times. I didn't react, and from that, they didn't focus on it one little bit for the rest yeah. of the game. So, yeah, it kind of worked, worked well. Geelong, they were heavy favourites. They'd lost only once in the entire season coming in, and there was the famous Clarko speech of likening Geelong to the shark, and when they stop, they die. They kept missing, you kept fighting, and the rest is history. How do you look back on this day? Uh, I, I look back. We got belief, I think it was round 17 that year when we played Geelong. It was July 20. 24, it was two days before Coop was, our oldest was born, so we had a bit going on that week, but we made a lot of errors, and I know I made a lot of errors trying to win the game in the last quarter, turned the ball over four or five times in the last quarter, and we walked back in on the Monday, Clark goes, we can beat this crew, and we're like, we, we just give, we just gave it everything, and, and we fell short again, um, and he sat, he, I learned a lot from that game as far as you don't try and win the game yourself, you, you try and just play the systems of reliable teams, more often than not, they're going to come out on top, so personally, I learned a lot, but as a team, we learned that we can match it with Geelong and and the shark story was about having 22 guys focused on one job we were, we were a team that could score we had no issues we had butt up forward we had um, Cyril we had Ruff we had no issues getting the ball moving forward it was defending and having everyone on the same page and that was the analogy with the shark trying to make sure that Geelong are a fast moving team they want to bring it through the corridor if we could have density in the corridor push them back push them sideways and don't give them that free flowing run we could put them into a position where they'll be unsure because they were clearly the best team all year and that's what the story did uh, and I think that's a big part of coaching, making sure that 22 people uh, know and working together for, for the same goal and, and that's what we did. It, it got to half time and a few things started to happen which we'd never seen Geelong. All, all year they were talking about goal assists and making sure they're the most selfless team but I remember just before half time Brad Ottens I think had it in the pocket and there was I think Joel Corey and Corey Enright yep. at the top of the goal square or, or 20 metres out and Geelong all year would have passed that to the top of the goal square and another goal but he had a shot and we're sort of sitting there at half time going they're doing things that Geelong have never done it's because we're putting pressure on him, uh, and also helped that we that the rush points that we uh, that we did we, we came up with a tactic that rather than just surging it back out under pressure and kicking it to Gary Ablett and Stevie Johnson and Joel Salwood and these guys, I said, why don't we we got the best kick in the league in Brent Guerra? Why don't we rush it through for a point, give it to him, and he can pierce their way through? So I think we rushed fourteen or fifteen points that day. So come up with the cluster, the the shark analogy with the the tactics of not just giving it back to them, and, and things started to turn our way, and, and they did a few undulong things in in a pressure situation. Clarkson's best pre-match spiel, was it? I mean, this is going to put you on the spot, I know. If it wasn't that, was it something else that comes to mind? The 2014 one sticks to mind. He, he's had some really good ones, but if we've lost, you sort of try and push them out the window. But the 2014 one, where football, for me and a lot of the players, you look at Roughhead Lewis, 
uh, Gibson Mitchell, the leadership group uh, at the time. The emotion and, and passion is, is what we're driven by. We're competitive blokes, but we're, we love football. And, and he touched on in 2014 what Sydney did to us in 2012. How did you feel when they were putting a premiership medal around your neck? How did you feel sitting on the ground watching them lift the cup? So he brought on that raw emotion and then he brought it to Bud saying, this is your teammate. This, you guys love this bloke. Absolutely love him. He's trying to take a premiership medal as Sydney did two years ago. He's trying to take a premiership medal off you. And, and by the time we walked out on that Friday... We were never going to lose that game. Like the energy was, you could just feel from from the fellas that the emotional side of things, that the passionate side of things that Clarko touched on, it hit a nerve because of what we went through two years earlier. Down to, they've been hard on Hanbury. That was a big hit. I think just how belligerent and fierce of the Hawks here. In all danger, cut off. Hawks will kick a second. He does. The captain kicks the tenth. He can feel that cap in his hands. I reckon. Um, so I think as, as a coach, your, your whole goal is to try and motivate your players and get them all on the same page. And, and they're two stories that sort of definitely resonated with us and, and got us playing at our best. But part of that spiel wasn't playing a, a kiss on him if you get the chance. <laughs> no, I, I don't know where, where that came from. Buddy and myself, we had a couple of run-ins throughout the season. First time we played against Buddy in 2013 when he played for Sydney, 2014, sorry, when he played for Sydney, he ran th- he came off the line and ran through Jordan Lewis. And it was the first game where Clarko had coached since 2005 without Mitchell, Sully or myself. So I was sitting in the, and I, I had a bit of a giggle thinking he, if he if there was someone who he wanted to get off the line, it was Louis. He, he got him, but no one reacted. And you could sort of see Clarko wasn't happy with it. And the next time he, I think at the end of that game, he, he dropped the shoulder into Birchall as well and no one reacted. And, and next time he played, Clarko sort of said, well, if you run past Bud, just let him know that he's not a teammate anymore to all the players. And we had a few run-ins and then grand final day, we had a few run-ins as well. And then we we're 50-odd points up and I thought, oh, the camera's, the ball's not in here, so I'll give him, I'll give him a peck on the cheek. But the camera's caught it. Next thing, there's 100,000 people laughing because they replayed it three or four times on the big screen. And then I panicked because I knew what Clarko... Clarko doesn't like smart Alex. And I wasn't being a smart Alex. It was just two former teammates there and, and I just laid a kiss on him. But then the runner came out, so I ran to the other side of the ground just so I didn't get dragged for being a smart Alex. So, no, it was, it was all funny games and Bud, Bud took it the right way. So that three-peat uh, that we're touching on here, 13, 14, 15 against Frio, Sydney and West Coast respectively. You know, 2014, you did win a second Norm Smith medal. I guess performing when the stakes are at their highest. I mean, if I was to ask you if you had a set of non negotiables to giving yourself the best chance to perform when it counts most what would be a couple of things you'd volunteer and i'm sure you get asked this from younger generation a lot delivering when the stakes are at their highest i think the main thing that i said earlier that uh what what i did learn from that round 17 game against geelong in 2008 that you don't be a hero uh, you don't try. If you try too hard, you're more often not going to stuff it up or mm. it's not going to work your way. So the biggest thing that we'd sort of say, and, and we had that was a mantra throughout our um, successful years, was trying to be reliable, not remarkable. And that's meaning that every person on the ground knows what you're going to do at that exact time. Uh, and that, I think that's why we were able to win close games in, in finals and, and have so much success year on year is because that's that was a mantra we stuck to. It was just being reliable for your teammates. I want to take you to 2010. Why did you take the captaincy in 2010, replacing Sam Mitchell. How did that come to be? Uh, I, I guess that goes back to end of 2007. Richie Vandenberg had retired and we had a vote. Uh, Clarko got 10 of the players around at Mitch's house and said, well, Mitch and Hodgie were vice captains. Uh, the board wants to know who's going to take us forward. The vote was 5 all. So we've gone, oh, co-captains, we'll move it in there. And Jeff Kennett said, Hawthorne have never had co-captains. you got two minutes to go and make a decision. And it's a pretty big decision to try and, <laughs> try and make in two minutes. But the clear person 
uh, was was Sam. I was I was 23 at the time. Mitch was 25, but Mitch was going on 30 with his professionalism, with his mentality. He he missed out on one or two drafts. Mm. Had to go back and play at Box Hill. Had to prove himself. So his professionalism and what he what we needed at that time was 100% him. And <clears throat> Mitch at the time said, "Look, you've obviously got leadership capabilities, but once you get to the stage where you're professional enough to lead a football club, then we'll have the chat and hand it over." Uh, and then after my 2010 season, 2000, I, I sort of came along a long way in those three years, eight, nine, ten. My football was at a consistent stage. My professionalism um, was, was definitely there and Mitch had, had a lot going on. Lyndall had just had Smith, their oldest, and she was pregnant with, with the with the twin girls. Um, so Mitch is sort of like, well, I've got a lot going on in my personal life. Um, you're at the stage to take over. We can just do a, a smooth transition. And that's how it went. Mitch, yeah. Mitch, for the three years that I was his vice captain, he was prepping me to be... Uh, a ready-made captain when I when I took in. So he would, if there's anything that come up with any issue that come to leadership group, he would give my chance to say, "What would you do in this situation?" And then I'd tell him. And sometimes he'd go with it, and sometimes he'd like, "No, nah, you're wrong. This is what we should do." And so he was sort of prepping me behind the scenes to to make sure that when I was captain, I wasn't making those decisions or learning the first 12 months. I had three years uh, as an apprentice, pretty much before I, I got the reins. The 2015 premiership was remarkable um, for the team, of course, but for you as well. So pre 2015 final series, the drink driving incident. Now, you caught up with some mates on the eve of the finals. When you see the booze bus, does the, does the heart rate go up or do you think, nah, I, I'm okay here, I've judged this well? I, I had no issues uh, yeah. when when I was driving. I thought I was no problems because I was suspended at the time. A few of the boys, a couple of former teammates and a few mates were having a poker night. So we went in there and I had a couple of beers and then I stopped. I remember there was a photo taken from the guys at 10.30 and there was a bottle of water in front of me. And that, funny enough, was the photo that was on the Herald Sun because one of the boys posted onto their social media page uh, and it was at 10.30 I had a bottle of water and I got pulled over at one, I think it was. So I'm driving thinking I'm no problems at all. Mm. Um, there's no, I, as I said, my old man uh, grew up with the SES, so he went to a lot of horrific scenes. I, I've heard a lot of the, the scenes that he, that what he'd seen. So then we, we got there and uh, the bloke said, oh, we've detected alcohol. I said, yeah. I said, I had a couple of years earlier, I haven't drank for two and a half hours and went and had the test. And the uh, the guy said, well, mate, you're you're probably half a beer or a beer over. And right then and there, I knew that I, I'd made a mistake. There's no point trying to get out of it. I'd, I went home and I rang Chris Fagan at 2.30 in the morning when I, I got back and said, look, Fags, um, this is what happened. And one thing that the footy club were big on, if you make a mistake, everyone makes mistakes. Yeah. But don't lie by trying to get out of it. Just let us know, tell us information, so then we can help look after you and, and go from then. So I rang Fags at, at 2.30, and then he goes, well, go to bed, and then come in and see the weird, weird training in the morning. So I went in there and saw Clarko, and I thought, here we go. So I'm not sure what's going to happen here. Am I going in ducking and weaving? And he said, you're a dickhead. And I'm like, waiting for the next one. He goes, mate, he goes, I know you was a person. He said, I know that you wouldn't have went and you're not four times over the limit. You made a bad, you made a bad decision. And I said, he goes, you're going to have to live with the embarrassment in, in the media, but just know that we're going to support you go through and you see that I spoke earlier about how football clubs when you're down they'll mm. try and bring you up and pump you up and when you're going really well they'll try and make sure that you're level and this is another part that I, I learned from Clarko that he knew that I was feeling bad for the mistake that I that I did but he knew that there's no way I would have deliberately done that uh, and I'm gonna have to face it but I'll face it with with him behind me and the football club behind me so I had a meeting with the leadership group and that was, that was what they reinforced they said look there was touts out there that I should be sacked from captain and then the players and, and the coaches were like well mate we know you as a person we know what you stand for we know that there's no way that you would have tried to, to get away with this it's, it's not as if you're four or five times over you made a mistake you have to live with your mistake but you were honest you told us the truth you did everything that we sort of say the players have to do when when you do make a mistake uh, and that's why that I, I stayed captain and, and that's why the, the club didn't throw me under the bus they, they supported
poor to me because of it was a general mistake and, and people do make mistakes. Gee, that must have been an enormous relief. Uh, the the publicity around it was insane at the time, and in fact, so remorseful were you, obviously, that you ended up getting criticised criticised from as being too remorseful because you don't play well, you lose that first final to West Coast, and. It's almost like you you did need to snap out of it, and you did spectacularly, and the rest is history. Yeah, that well, was Kako. Uh, we went to, went over to West Coast in the first the first final. This was my first game since since all this happened, and he put me on the halfback flank. And he said to me, he "Goes, mate, I know that what you're going to try and do, you're going to try and go in there. You'll be trying to make up for your for your mistake over the last 12 days." And he goes, "I just want you to control yourself." And then after the game, he goes, "I'm sorry." He goes, "I should have just let you go and play in the middle." Mm. From that, it was almost like the kick in the backside. We went back to playing normal, and it almost I don't know, it was after the West Coast game, there was an article from Mark Robinson that he went through pretty much half the side. And I remember I sent that to Clark and I read that before every final. And, and Clark actually put it, he printed it out and had it in there before the, the grand final that year. Um, just to sort of say that we're too old, but too slow, this is what people think about us. Yeah, so it was, it was probably one of the, the worst times of my career because it was mm. no one's fault but mine. But then to, to, for it to turn around and, and get the support that he did from family, friends, uh, and the football club was sort of shows how good football clubs are. Back to Hodge. That's a goal, I think. It is. Hodge has done it from nowhere. We shouldn't be surprised, should we? And that was an emphatic showing back against the Eagles on grand final day. That was huge. Uh, you're listening to This Is Your Journey. It's all thanks to Tobin Brothers Funerals. Celebrating lives and there's more to come with the Hawthorne icon Luke Hodge right after this. You're listening to This Is Your Journey with Sam Edmund. For Tobin Brothers Funerals, visit tobinbrothers.com.au. Tobin Brothers Funerals. Celebrating lives. You're listening to This Is Your Journey with Sam Edmund. For Tobin Brothers Funerals, visit tobinbrothers.com.au. Tobin Brothers Funerals, celebrating lives. It's been great to have your company here on This Is Your Journey. It's all thanks to Tobin Brothers Funerals, a family-owned business since 1934. And we've had the company today, one of the greatest captains in VFL, AFL history, Luke Hodge. So, Hodgie, yourself, Sam Mitchell, Jordan Lewis, for so long, the key cogs in the Hawthorne engine room. You're going through the 2016 season. When did you know the band was about to be broken up? To be honest, I was as shocked as anyone. I got a message from a mate saying, is it true that Mitch is going to West Coast? A non-football like, playing mate. Uh, uh, no, I actually think it was Limo. I think it was Limo text me. He's an avid Hawthorne. I was up at Noosa at a mate's wedding, and it was the day after the wedding, and I was laying in on the couch there, and I'm like, nah. I said, I'll, I'll text Mitch. And I said, what's this? Is it 50, Is this a 50-50 story? Has it got traction? He wrote back 90-10. I'm like, oh, crap. He was over in New Zealand at the time and caught me by surprise. And then next thing is the, a couple of days later, the Louis one as well. No inkling to anything like that. Clarko was open with Gibbo, Mitch, myself, and Sean. Him, Righty, uh, Fags, they, they brought the four of us in prior to that year and just sort of said, look, you guys all can't go out at the same time. He goes, because if you look at Brisbane, and Brisbane held on. They had success back in 01 to 03, grand final 04, but then they all all retired at the same time and, and they fell away. He goes, we need to drip feed you guys out just so yeah, just so we can give other blokes experience but still having a leaders in and around. Didn't expect Mitch to be to be gone so far. Mitch goes to West Coast. Louis goes to Melbourne. This is within five days. I went back and had a look. Shocked the yep. footy world. Turned the trade period upside down. Now, as you said, pre the start of the season, you were broadly consulted around phasing you all out. But with this specifically, you weren't, even as captain, you 
weren't brought into the tent that, look, no. this is a reasonable chance to happen? Nothing. With football clubs, there's so many discussions that go on that the yep. coach isn't a part of, that the captain isn't a part of, and, and you're having all these discussions about the season. So that's not a big surprise. And, and I think I think when Clarko sort of went there, it was more of a, hey, would you be interested? And then I think he went to both because I, I don't think he, he thought both of them would, would say yes. They both did. They both found new clubs. And then Hawthorne went to work and, and bringing in, at the time you're sitting there going, they're bringing in Jager, O'Meara and, and Tommy Mitchell uh, as younger blokes who could probably fill those roles. So you're sitting there probably going, well, if it's going to mean longevity for the football club, you can understand why they did that. But it was a massive shock. So 12 months later, you retire. Well, less than 12 months later. You, you announce in July of 2017 that this will be your final year. By October, you're being traded to Brisbane. So did Clarko have a problem with it? Did you feel any obligation to explain yourself? You did play a farewell game after all at Marvel Stadium. Let us into your thinking here. It's like Johnny um, Farnham, Rick, aren't it? Yeah. Oh, I have been called Johnny Farnham a few times from players and former teammates. Look, it, it came of because of what happened with Mitch and Louis. My whole in 2007, I actually had a, a reasonably good year. Uh, I come third in the BNF, so I was playing good football. But in the back of my mind, we had a young up-and-coming list, and, and the club was in that transition phase. I was playing half back. I'd stop going through the middle because Clarko wanted Jager and, and Tommy and, and Liam Shields and that to own the middle. So I start, I stayed down back, and I was helping Sicily. I was helping Hardwick. I was helping Burton. Um, these three guys because Frawley, Stratton, and Birchall were all injured. And in my mind, I'm sitting there going, well, when those blokes come back in, that one of these three guys won't play. And I'm sitting there going, well, I'm not going to be part of the, the next premiership side. And, and all year, the media were like, well, what's going to happen with Hodge? Is he going to get traded? Is he going to get? Is he going to retire? Is he going to play on? And it was in the it was on the eve of my 300th game. And I said to Clark, I said, I don't want to finish. If this is my last year, I said, I don't want to finish it by people querying, am I going to retire? I said, why don't we just put it out there so that I'll do my 300 presser, say that this is my final year, knock them both over with that. And at least that way, you're not getting peppered. I'm not getting peppered for the end of the year. And I can sit back and enjoy football for the last eight or nine games. That's what we did. And my form continued to get stronger. And I know Fags, Fags sent a message as a joke saying, oh, that old body of yours would love the sunshine up here if you if you were interested. And I sort of gave him the thumbs up, bit of a joke and, and just kept playing. But yeah, as, as we sort of finished, we had the farewell game with, with Bob Murphy and, and Boydie and, uh, against Bulldog. Yeah, sort of that was it. And then sort of Fags said, no, I'm sent a message. I can't remember the, the exact wording, but I'm, I'm actually serious. If yeah, if you were interested, if you want to play, your football was good and, and we need we need some, some blokes up here with a bit of experience to teach the young guys. And it's still at that stage, I was like, nah, not, not interested. And then I remember something that Croft said to me. It was about two weeks, two weeks into my retirement, and I was sitting there going, oh, I still love football so much. I'm, I'm still, I still want to play. I still love playing it. Still want to be around it. I remember Croft saying that when he retired after 2008, because his knees, his body was banged up. Within about two or three months after that, he goes, he was fit, he was fresh, and he wanted to play again. But he'd already made the announcement, and he reckons he used to go for runs because he used to live in Brighton near Clarko. He used to go for runs past Clarko's house just on that chance that Clarko would see him and go, Hey, mate, why don't you come? You're looking fit. Do you want to play on again? That was in my mind. So I sent a message to Fag saying, well, if that offer's still there, I'm happy to have a chat. And, and things sort of progressed from there. And then when the trade got right down the nitty-gritty, didn't Clarko send you a message along the lines of not sure if it's going to happen? <laughs> <laughs> well, Clarko, Clarko, it wasn't just that I'm going to go. I brought him into the discussion the whole time. As soon as I sort of had those those feelings, I we, uh, Lauren and myself went round to his house for, for a feed. And he was actually helping me. I was at the finishing stage of putting out um, a book. And he read through the whole thing and said, oh, mate, wording here, because he was a teacher. So he actually went through and sort of guided me. Oh, yeah, a bit of punctuation parts. as well. Yeah, a little, little, little <laughs> few things. A kid from Colac would need a little bit of help with his, with his book. A couple of those discussions, I sort of said, mate, I've sort of got the bug for football and Fag sort of started out with a bit of a joke, but I'm, we're actually th- contemplating contemplating 
going back and not retiring and going back to Brisbane. Yeah. And then we went round to his house about a week later and said, mate, I am, I'm actually going to go to Brisbane. We spoke to Fags. Fags come around and said, we're actually going to make pack up the family. We're going to head up there. If it's for two years, it's for two years. Uh, we'll come back if it doesn't work. And then he's, it, was, it was sort of funny just seeing the mentor, but also the coach at the same time. It was, uh, mate, well, if you want another year, more than happy for you to play on at Hawthorne if that's the case. And I sort of went through the Stratton, Frawley and Virtual were injured. Yeah. I said, if they come back in, I don't want to kick a kid out. The whole part of you teaching us was when we leave Hawthorne, you leave it in a better place. And I think it'll be a better place if these three guys are playing. And he's like, oh, okay. He goes, well, he realised I wasn't going to play for Hawthorne. He goes, well, if we trade you, we could get picks 40, 41, 47. So we went from the mentor straight into, how can I get my picks out of this and, and move <laughs> yeah. higher up the ladder? So no, it was, it was, he was a part of the discussion. So there was, was, there was no shock on, on his part. He sort of said that when he made his move, he moved across to Adelaide for coaching. He had a young family. It was the best thing that he did. And yeah. he said, I can understand why, why you're doing it. Looked like an enjoyable couple of years. And as we said off the top, it set yourself up for the, the rest of your life. The media stuff that you've thrown yourself right into with uh, with Seven and us here at, at SEN. I love the iconic microphone technique with the straight pinky. <laughs> it's a legacy from your playing days. Are you enjoying it? Uh, yeah, I am. It's it's something that, look, I've had to do a, a lot of work. Peter Mitchell's been really good for me as far as presentation stuff and not cutting my kicking and marking and all the stuff, <laughs> the, the the old Colax slang. And when, yeah. you, when, you, when you're sitting around a, with a few mates in a pub, that's how you can talk. But my nana was the biggest feedback on, on that. She's making sure that you finish off your words. But that's uh, I've sort of taken the same mindset as I did with football. It, it's it's a long journey and you make mistakes, that's how you improve. Uh, and with social media, people give you a lot of feedback when you make mistakes and, and that's ever. just sort of how I've taken it. Yeah, feedback's a gift, I've always been told, and it's how you want to use it. So I'm doing a lot of work with it. Jared, Jared Waitley's been amazing. I, I, when COVID happened, I was doing coaching with the Lions and I, I couldn't do both jobs. You had to either be in the bubble or out of the bubble. So I had a year working with Jared and l- learnt so much. The following year, I went, went back to doing coaching with the Lions and I felt my media dropped away because I wasn't he, he makes you on edge he makes sure you do your research so as soon as I finish the coaching I've jumped straight back on Wednesdays with him uh, and Saturdays so it's, it's good you, you surround yourself with the right people who are always looking to help and, and that's how you develop no, I've been enjoying it from the outside looking in Let, let's finish where we started and that's essentially around family I, I wanted to ask you one cheeky one on Cooper and, and without wanting to put <laughs> any pressure on him at all who knows what happens from here but he was named in the under 15 all Australian team which was awesome he's in the Lions Academy how many times do you get asked is it going to be Hawthorne or is it going to be Brisbane? Most functions grand final week this year was a, a there was Hawthorne one supporter would, would put their hand up and just sort of say, so you've got four boys, where are they going to play? <laughs> and my, my response to all that is he's a 15-year-old kid. Uh, he's a 15-year-old kid who just wants to play football. He loves football. So much can happen in three years. Like, yeah, so much, yeah. He's developed so much in 12 months. So uh, my, my sort of answer is if the same question comes in three years' time when he's available for the draft and he's still playing good enough football to get noticed, then he'll have to make a decision. But he's obviously got father-son with, with Hawthorne. He's got opportunities with the academy me with the Lions, but you just need one of 18 teams that, that like what you can do to, to get an opportunity. So we'll see how that goes. And that is the only answer you need to provide, as you say, <laughs> for the next three years. Uh, it's the only way to go about it. It's It's been great to watch him come through. Hey, Hodgie, pleasure to catch up with you. From the enormous promise you showed as the kid from Colac to the Hawthorne hero you became for so many, certainly been a footy life well lived and impossible not to admire the way you played the game. Fierce and uncompromising but also with that inspirational follow me aura. So well done on everything you've done and we appreciate you sharing your story with us today. Perfect, Sammy. Thanks for the time, mate. You've been listening to This Is Your Journey for Tobin Brothers Funeral Celebrating Lives. Jump online. They're at tobinbrothers.com.au and we'll catch you the next time we celebrate another great sporting journey.